Welcome back for another episode of District of Conservation. I am your host, Gabriella Hoffman. Did you enjoy yesterday's episode detailing President Trump's conservation legacy, previewing what a potential mansion chairmanship would be for the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources and why canceling the Keystone Pipeline is bad? Today, then, you're going to really enjoy our roundtable on the future of gun rights in the United States and what the political landscape looks for us, those who support the Second Amendment going forward. I'm joined by Stephen Gutowski of the Washington Free Beacon, Mark Oliva of the National Shooting Sports Foundation, and Cam Edwards of Bearing Arms, a sister publication of townhall.com, where I write. You're going to hear what they have to say about the latest pressing issues, and if you want to connect with them, all their information will be at the show notes. I think you're going to appreciate what these three guys have to say. I go to them often for advice we talk and exchange about what's happening in the news, and I lean on them for source material, and I think you will too. Here is my conversation with these three highly esteemed firearms industry players. Check it out. I'm joined by three of the most preeminent voices in the firearms industry. We have Mark Oliva from NSSF. He will tackle a lot of the industry kind of marketing questions here today, and Stephen and Cam Edwards uh, of the Washington Free Beacon and Bearing Arms, respectively. We'll talk a little bit about the politics and also uh, kind of just the uh, scope of what is happening in the firearms industry as well. So gentlemen, thank you so much for joining my podcast and for also uh, consenting to allowing me to do this and post it to YouTube as well. So thank you guys for joining. Wait, this is being recorded? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Gabby. It's actually a real treat to be able to uh, to share the stage with these two guys. uh, They're very well versed in the issues, and uh, and, and I think that they have a lot of perspective to offer. So thanks. Absolutely. Do you guys want to talk about maybe what the next few months and perhaps the next few, the next year or so means for the Second Amendment advocacy cause for firearms? Uh, Because with just the changing nature of Washington, definitely the change in the Senate and the executive branches, there's a lot to kind of take away from that. So uh, what what do you think we should be on the lookout for, especially with divided government, but still kind of more anti-gun majorities in the Senate, Congress, and now obviously the White House? Uh, Yeah, let's um, take a stab. Go ahead, Steve. I'm sorry. All right. Well, so I think um, first off... uh, we should just talk about the environment, right? So you have um, Joe Biden, Democrat becoming president, who ran on a very, um, really historically strict gun control platform. Um, essentially, everything right up to confiscation. Um, you know, he, he wants, uh, in his ideal world, I guess, at least, he wants um, the uh, ban on, a ban on sales of assault weapons, um, you know, including things like the AR-15, um, which is the most popular rifle in the country. Uh, and then for those who currently own them, um, and I'm sure Mark can, can give us some more insight on how many people that is uh, in a little bit here, but uh, he wants them to have to register those firearms under the National Firearms um, Act, which would require a $200 tax stamp per item, um, which would reach into the uh, tens of billions, I believe the number was $34 billion uh, range, given the estimates we have out there. Um, 
And so his his plans are are quite extreme. And Kamala Harris actually is uh, on record going even a step further to actual confiscation uh, of of the same firearms. Um, <clears throat> so there, the positions they've staked out in the in the White House are rather extreme. Um, and then you think about where Congress is at. So you have um, Democrats in control of both houses, but the reality is there are very slim margins there. And so it's going to be difficult, I think, for them to pass any sort of significant gun legislation, not impossible uh, by any means, but difficult, uh, especially with the 50-50 Senate with someone like uh, Joe Manchin having a lot of control over what makes it to the floor. Um, and I would note as well that while Democratic leadership favors you know, things like um, universal background checks and an assault weapons ban, even uh, when they had larger majorities in the House in the last Congress, um, they did. They weren't able to actually pass an assault weapons ban through the democratically controlled House, um, which is interesting and probably says a lot about where the future lays. Now, I think with the Capitol riot, um, that might change the calculation some. It's still hard to see exactly how that's going to shake out if it does change the legislative realities on, on the national front at all or not. But I think the realistic path for new gun regulations will come through the executive branch, through executive actions. And there's a lot of potential there for a number of different things to happen. Yeah, I agree with Stephen um, in terms of the, the legislative outlook at the moment. I mean, obviously, if the filibuster gets nuked, that's uh, that, that changes everything. But the one bill that I am a little concerned about, it wasn't in terms of gun control, but no fly, no buy, uh, which, you know, it's been around in various forms since like 2007. And this basically says if you're on the no fly list that you can't buy a gun. Um, we've seen since the Capitol riot, a number of politicians come out and say, hey, listen, anybody who participated in that uh, riot, if you were there at the Stop the Steal rally, even uh, you should be on the no fly list. We can't trust you. And back in 2016 and 2018, it was actually Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine who introduced No Fly, No Buy. So at the time, I believe in 2018, I think she had three Republicans join her, Pat Toomey. And actually, no, there were eight Republicans who voted in favor of it. Um, not all of them are still in Congress. Uh, Jeff Flake was one of them. He's obviously no longer senator from Arizona. But but that's a bill that I, I kind of worry about getting just enough bipartisan support that even though the NRA and the ACLU both oppose no fly, no buy for different reasons, uh, that it's one of the, uh, and this is a common sense proposal and something like that actually gets through in terms of legislation. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, so I, I want to add into it. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think to understand uh, for the 19 when he stood on the debate stage during the Democratic primaries and he looked at the camera and he wagged his finger at everyone and he said the firearms manufacturers are the enemy. Now that's a really bold statement to make and I don't want to put that into a little bit of perspective. I'm, I'm a veteran. I served 25 years in the Marine Corps. When I retired from the Marine Corps, I am still obligated to my oath of service to defend the, defend the Constitution of America against all enemies foreign and domestic. 
he was pointing at me. And, and our industry is fairly heavily represented by, by veterans. We have a lot of veterans in the firearm industry. We just kind of seem to attract that kind of person. Um, and so he's telling everyone that we are the enemy. And, and another case in point is, you know, Stephen kind of touched on, he says he wants to go up to everything uh, right up to confiscation. Well, he actually sat down for an interview with Anderson Cooper prior to the election. And he, when asked, would you uh, consider uh, confiscating AR-15 style rifles? He said, bingo, I'll do it. So I don't put it past that he wants to do these things. And from the fire minister perspective, we're taking him at his word. I mean, if he said he wants to do these things, we're going to believe that he wants to do these things. And he really has put out a very far-reaching agenda to include, he knows he can't have a national firearm registry, so he wants to force the states to adopt 50 state registries that the federal government could access. So he wants to force them kind of the same way that the federal government forced people to, force the states rather, to adopt a 21-year-old drinking age. You don't do it, then we're not going to give you the money for your road bills, those kinds of things. So we're very concerned about those, those kinds of issues that are going to be popping up. When we talk about the Congress, and I think Stephen was absolutely right, you, you have to look toward some of those, uh, I don't even know if you can call them blue dog Democrats anymore. I don't know if there are really that many left. But some of those centrist Democrats who, have, uh, who are from states that have a hunting tradition and a strong Second Amendment uh, tradition within those states, and, and have previously voted against some of these measures before. So I think when you're talking about them, you're talking about uh, Senator Manchin from from, uh, from West Virginia. You're also talking about Senator Tester from Montana. You're talking about Senator Heinrich from from uh, New Mexico, and you can probably even throw in there Senator Cinema uh, from from Arizona, who has kind of bucked her own party uh, on more than a few issues. So we look to see what they do and what their appetite is. Now, again, I want to remind your listeners that Senator Manchin was also one of the two authors of the Manchin Toomey Universal Background Check Bill. So he does have an appetite. For, for doing some of these things. And while he said he doesn't want to blow up the, blow up the filibuster, he also came out over the weekend and said that he would uh, consider expelling, uh, you know, Senator Cruz from the Senate. So he, he is kind of, you know, hedging his bets a little bit on how far or how, how close he's going to hold his, uh, his cards to the best on some of these issues. So I, I think it really bears out watching where some of these centrist Democrats are going to be and, and how much they're going to listen to their own voters. I'm not sure embracing an assault weapons ban is going to go over very well in West Virginia, which has a very strong Second Amendment tradition. They're all valid points, and it'll be interesting. And, and something I want to post to all three of you is that obviously with the historic numbers of firearms that were purchased, especially the 8.4 million new gun owners, how would they be able to put this in effect when kind of public opinion is changing more people, especially in, let's say, anti-gun states are buying firearms at historic levels? How, how are they going to be able to face the music when the public is kind of shifting and going away from attitude? Of, and, and what is the industry going to do about it, you think? Yeah, so let me let me jump on that first. I think it's important we kind of examine some of these numbers. And, and as you said, uh, NSSF puts out the adjusted mix number. So our numbers are always going to be a little bit lower than the than the FBI's figures. Uh, FBI, I think, had 39 million background checks that they conducted. Now, we only report out the ones that are associated with the sale of a firearm. And we had 21 million background checks for the sale of a gun in 2020. By far, shattered the records from any previous year. The best year we ever had before was in 2016, and that was 15.7 million. So NSSF, about the summertime in 2020, decided you know, we really wanted to kind of get to know who is buying these guns. This is, we don't have a national firearm registry. There's nowhere you could go on a, a registry and say, Mark didn't own a gun yesterday, but he does own one today. Uh, so we had to kind of ask our retailers, what are you seeing when, when these people are walking into your stores? 
And the retailers are telling us that 40% of the people that were coming in were buying a gun for the very first time. That's a, that's a tectonic shift. So that 21 million figure, that gives us over 8.4 million people who bought a gun for the very first time in 2020. They also told us that 40% of the people buying guns were women. And they told us that the largest demographic increase of any, any particular group was among African-Americans. And that rose 58% from 2019 to 2020. So again, what I was trying to, tell, trying to tell people is that today's gun buyer looks a whole lot less like me, like a 47-year-old white guy living in the suburbs of D.C., and more like the rest of America. And you're right, that is, that is shifting. What was very telling is over the summer, I saw a lot of reports, actually one from the New York Times, was a video op-ed piece that they put out, where they're specifically interviewing African-Americans who were purchasing firearms over the summer and, and why they were doing it. One of the women that they had on there actually had campaigned with Michael Bloomberg for Every Town for Gun Safety, the gun control group that he pays for. She was on the stage campaigning for gun control laws, but this year she decided that she needed to have a firearm to protect herself. She went out and bought a handgun for the very first time. So that kind of tells you how much shifted that people are now taking personal responsibility for their own safety and they're exercising their Second Amendment right. So that is shifting the conversation. And I think that's something that a lot of these senators are really going to have to look towards. I actually talked to one reporter out of Connecticut who had, had spoken to both senators in Connecticut. And, and Senator Murphy, who will always tell you that gun control is one of his top priorities, actually, you know, was probably used as top three or top five priorities going into every Congress. This year, he put it as his top 20. So that kind of tells you that he's reading the tea leaves that there might not be the appetite to push some of these gun control issues that they've been pushing for years because people this year realized how difficult it was. We actually had anecdotal reports from some of the, from the FFLs out in, San, in, in California at the height of the buying. They were standing at the gun counter because they have a 10-day waiting period in California before you can come back and pick up your gun. They were standing there peeling off $100 bills right in front of the FFL saying, what's it going to take for me to walk out of the store with this gun today? And the guy was like, get out of my store. I'm not going to risk my license for you. Peeling off $100 bills. People all of a sudden woke up to the reality that these politicians around them have been writing laws that affect them and not affecting the criminals. So I think people are kind of waking up to that. Yeah, I think you're right, Mark. I mean, especially when you look at the rise in violent crime in some of these places that have really draconian gun control laws. Um, obviously, we saw a rise in violent crime across the country in 2020, but you know, California wasn't spared because of its 10-day waiting period or because you have to show ID to buy ammunition. Uh, since the start of the year, I just saw South Los Angeles homicides up 150 percent. I think shootings are up something like 750 percent uh, in South Los Angeles since January the 1st. So I think that people are starting to come to that realization of, oh, yeah, these laws are meant to inhibit me, not the bad guys. But I, I think in terms, you know, also related to that, Democrats have spent the last year talking about defunding the police, about reimagining policing. And, and I've stated uh, several times before, if you are in favor of criminalizing the, the possession of a firearm or a quote unquote high capacity magazine, if you want to make it a crime punishable by prison time, uh, you know, to, to have a nonviolent possessory offense like that, then you're part of the problem. Uh, and I think gun control advocates have tried to avoid reckoning with this issue. They've started promoting things like, you know, violence interrupters, and they're trying to, you know, throw more money at, at other sides of this problem. Uh, but ultimately, if you are in favor of putting more laws on the books and you believe the criminal justice system is systemically biased and racist, well, then you're adding to the problem. You're not fixing it. So I, I would love to see that debate take place within the Democrat Party. Because I know that there are some voices on the left who have been making that case. Um, whether or not it actually happens publicly, 
I guess remains to be seen. But, you know, there are, to me, there are arguments from a Democrat's perspective, even if you don't like the Second Amendment, even if you think the Constitution doesn't really protect an individual right to keep and bear arms, there are still arguments, valid arguments against every one of these gun control proposals from the left's perspective. Um, I think those are all uh, very valid points. And I want to uh, go off of something that Mark had said about uh, Senator Murphy pushing gun control down his priority list. Um, that I do think points to the realities of the, the, how the federal government works, um, especially for an incoming president. Um, you know, you can look at somebody like Barack Obama in his first term, um, or really his entire presidency, and you can see that he had a situation where he actually had enough of a majority in both houses to pass anything he wanted. But the reality is it takes a long time to legislate major packages um, in how our federal government works. And so you only have the opportunity to pass a few sort of landmark pieces of legislation when you first get into office. And then usually, uh, as happened with Obama, Trump, Bush, um, usually the voters will put the other party in control of at least one House of Congress after that period of, you know, after the midterms. And so you have maybe two years as an incoming president to try and push through your landmark agenda. And the reality is for Biden, now Obama picked healthcare, right? Obamacare was his big proposal. There was the stimulus and then there was healthcare. Um, he didn't do any major gun control during the time period where he actually could have passed something like that, probably because uh, one, they felt they had a bigger advantage on those other issues than they did with guns. Um, um, but now you just look at Biden's presidency and he's coming into a situation where he has the coronavirus pandemic still raging, which is going to have to be his top priority. Um, you know, absolutely. And then on top of that, and because of it, you have the economic, um, situation which is still very dire in the United States and he's going to have to deal with that and gun control is something that's going to be very controversial even among um, the Democratic caucus and it's going to be very difficult for them to pass anything substantial like a confiscation effort not again not impossible but very difficult it's more of the um the less extreme measures have a better chance, like like universal background checks or, or the uh, no fly, no buy, um, where there's sort of a broader public polling support for those things, even if there's obviously legitimate reasons why um, many people in the gun rights community oppose them. Um, but then on the second point, uh, I would say when you talk about new gun owners, um, you have to be realistic, I think, about what their political impact is going to be in the short term. Because it, I don't think it's likely that even though there are 8.4 million new gun owners, um, you know, as the industry estimates, it's not likely that those people were all Democrats and are all going to suddenly switch to be party line Republicans because they bought a gun. Now, it's likely in the long term, the reason that that number matters so much in my view is because over time, a, probably a significant percentage of those people will 
develop into um, gun rights activists uh, or, or people or gun voters, people who value that um, a politician's position on gun control um, when they go and vote. They might not become party line Republicans even then, but if they have an impact on the Democratic Party's position on firearms, which has shifted significantly to the left over the last decade or more um, here and is probably at its most um, extreme position since the 60s um, or maybe the 90s um, where there were much more extreme ideas that got mainstream traction um, among Democrats. But that's, I think, the value of these new gun owners is the long-term effect, less so than the 2020 election or the 2022 elections um, or those, those sorts of things where it's going to be um, probably years before you see the full impact of, of what those people, um, what the full impact that they'll have. And um, it's not something I think people should expect to, to start happening immediately. Um, and I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Yeah, I think Stephen's right. And I think the, I don't think that the Biden administration is lost on this. I think they, they understand they have a very limited time window. They understand that that not all 8.4 million of these people who bought a gun last year for the first time are energized gun voters. <clears throat> and that's why I think really, I think a lot of the concern for us in the industry is that he's going to attempt to do things through regulation. And that's going to be fairly easy for him to do. Uh, it's a matter of, of stopping regulations, just rewriting rules that that, that were written during the past four years. Um, and, you know, we're looking at simple things like, you know, the OCC uh, fair access rule that was just finalized. Uh, it's not going to take much for him to, to stop that and to turn it around, just write a new rule. You can do that without congressional approval, just write a new rule. Um, so it's just just going through the rulemaking process. Um, and we, we're looking at those. We have some serious uh you know, kind of behind the scenes stuff that a lot of people in, in the gun world may not understand. From. Uh, stuff that was actually started under the Obama administration was put on the shelf because of political reasons because they had to do guns. But export control for all categories was was started to be fixed then, so things would be a little bit more streamlined. But we didn't get around to doing uh, guns until the Trump administration, and so that finally got done. Well, we're very concerned that that could that could put American manufacturers again at a disadvantage advantage to their European or, or overseas counterparts. And that's what, what that was, was about leveling the playing field to put the American manufacturer on the same footing, that they didn't have to seek congressional approval. They didn't have to go to the $1 million threshold. And then one senator could shut off the whole thing just by objecting to it, which was happening. Um, and when it was such a cumbersome process, many of the manufacturers wouldn't even compete for overseas contracts. So things like that. But we're also looking at some of the other you know user kind of issues that may not necessarily always align with what you see in, well, it's not necessarily a manufacturing issue because it's not a complete gun, but things like pistol braces, which has certainly come up as, as a huge issue here in the past couple of months. You know, uh, as, as Stephen kind of talked about, you know, uh, Vice President-elect Harris has certainly come out and said that she wants to weaponize the ATF against the industry and against retailers. She doesn't want that cooperative relationship that's happened where it can be educational and make sure that everyone stays within the regulations and within the laws. But she wants to be able to say, well, if you have, and this is the way the law is written, if you have one violation, they can yank your license right away. So now that's that's what we're concerned is, is will the ATF be weaponized against the industry and against the individual user? Will you see things like pistol braces go away because all you have to do is just write a new regulation? And we saw how easy that can happen 
when we were talking about bump stocks a few years ago. And it was done by regulation. It was done very quickly and it was done, you know, kind of out the door and over. So I think the, the real concern for us, and at least in the short term, for the first you know year or so, is going to be what see what happens through uh, regulation and executive order. And briefly, uh, while I still have you guys, do you think the judiciary is going to come into play, especially the Supreme Court and just the slew of uh, different appointed judges? Will they perhaps be a stopgap to some of this? Are people going to lean on the courts? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've already got some cases that are coming up for review uh, later this month, uh, dealing with felon possession cases, uh, the NRA New York state rifle and pistol association has brought a carry challenge. Um, that is, you know, right now they're asking the court to, uh, to grant cert in that case. And there's another filing that's due early next month and then the court will make its decision. Um, yeah, this is going to be a busy year as far as second amendment jurisprudence, not only at the Supreme court, but at the lower court level as as well, we've got some really big cases that are kicking around the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, also dealing with, you know, magazine bans with the right to carry. Um, and, you know, this is one of the areas where I think President Trump made a, a significant impact for the better as far as gun owners is concerned uh, through the hundreds of judicial appointments that he made, not just the, th- the three Supreme Court justices. Uh, but, you know, again, the, the Ninth Circuit is a, a much more balanced court than it was a few years ago when it was, you know, called the Ninth Circus uh, and it was the most overturned circuit court in the country. Now that you've got a, a, a much greater uh, degree of ideological balance there, um, which I think, you know, better gives us a better chance of getting a fair day in court uh, when we bring these types of challenges. How about the issue? Yeah, and I, I think that... Um if you're a gun rights activist now, um, you're a gun owner, that's probably your biggest area of excitement or, or, or um, happiness at the moment in the federal government is, is the courts, is the Supreme Court, um, and, and really the, the courts generally. Um, you know, the nuking of the, uh, the filibuster on judicial appointments really did backfire quite dramatically on um, Harry Reid and Democrats um, because a few years later they lost control and now the Republicans have used it to uh, put put a lot of uh, new judges on the courts throughout the entire federal system um, and which sort of gives you a, <laughs> a cautionary tale for Democrats for nuking the legislative filibuster as well because not one party does not stay in control of the federal government forever as we've, we've learned over and over again in the United States but anyway um, I think that you're going to see um, on the grand scale a push to um, institute a new form of review in gun cases. Um, That is really what the gun rights activists are trying to get at. Um, Now, they've loaded up a bunch of new cases from the Second Amendment Foundation, Firearms Policy Coalition, the National Rifle Association, have all filed new cases since Barrett's appointment. in order to try and move stuff up to the Supreme Court as fast as possible on a variety of different issues. And more so than individual victories on these specific cases, what they're looking for is a text history tradition standard to be used by the lower courts when they look at gun cases because gun rights um, advocates believe that that puts them on a better uh, footing, they, they uh, kind of the uh, the complaint has been since Heller and McDonald that um, the lower courts have more or less ignored the 
Supreme Court's precedent in those cases and just instituted essentially a rational basis test, which just means as long as there's a rational basis that can be explained for, for a, uh, um, a regulation or a restriction that the government wins the case, um, which is one of the lowest standards of review that you can have in federal court. And so basically the gun rights advocates have taken um, this position that they want not just to win in a carry case or a assault weapons ban case, but also to have the court say, this is how lower courts should look at these cases going forward at this, what is a, a higher standard of review, which would inevitably lead to more gun restrictions being thrown out as unconstitutional or in conflict with or in violation of the Second Amendment. Um, and so I think that's what you'll, you'll see. And then um, that is going to be a very significant thing, um, I think, when it comes to how the um, bluer jurisdictions like New York, California, Maryland, Massachusetts try to handle this in court. We've already seen them more or less try to um, avoid Supreme Court review of their uh, gun laws going back since McDonald, um, fearing that they would lose a significant case and set a significant precedent. And so you've seen them time and again, basically give up when they've lost at a lower level. Uh, you saw this in Illinois with gun carry. Once they lost at the circuit level, they did not try to appeal to the Supreme Court. They just passed a carry law instead, a shall issue law. DC did the exact same thing when they lost um, in the at the circuit level in, in uh, their carry case. They, instead of appealing to the Supreme Court, they just went along with the lower court ruling in order to avoid a broader precedent that affects more states. New York did the same thing in the most recent Supreme Court case, um, which dealt with their gun transportation laws. They had this very unique um, novel law where you couldn't even, if you, if you had a, a gun legally registered in New York City, you couldn't even take to another property that you owned within New York legally. And so in once the Supreme Court accepted that case, New York said, never mind, we're changing our law. Uh, don't Please don't rule on this case because now it's moot because we just gave in and did what the plaintiffs wanted now that we are afraid that the Supreme Court's going to rule on it. And it worked. Um, the Supreme Court didn't rule on it. Um, but I think now with the balance of the court even further towards... Um, you know, the more conservative justices, you're less likely to see those kinds of um, events happen where they they go along with letting something like what New York did happen. Instead, you'll probably see stations, what they call it, from localities where they just give up um, instead of trying to appeal. Um, or you'll even see it probably from some judges and lower court law is unconstitutional on a certain specific point, um, but not the point that the plaintiffs were, the broader point that they're trying to get. And then basically they'll have to go through the whole process again, which takes years uh, in some cases. And, and so that's what you'll see is like this reality dawn on some of these um, lower court judges who don't, 
necessarily agree with the philosophy of the presiding philosophy at the Supreme Court about guns. They'll try to minimize cases and you'll see the, the jurisdictions themselves try to avoid taking things all the way up to the Supreme Court. Interesting. I have just about a minute with you guys left. I wanted to cover some deplatforming issues, but hopefully we'll revisit it. But list off where people can follow your musings, reporting, uh, agency stuff, um, industry-related news. So briefly, guys, talk where people connect with you. So you can find anything about the industry under nssf.org. Specifically, if you go to media tab you see the blogs and we post the press releases any of the information that we can update uh, that are going to be stuffed is specifically to manufacturers distributors retailers and the ability to bring the gun that you want to market uh you can find me at uh, barryarms.com also on youtube just look for a uh, town hall media it's where we do barry arms cam and company or rumble.com uh also apple Podcasts, amazon spotify soundcloud and stitcher as well and you can find me at freebeacon.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Stephen Gutowski. Um, if you want to read my Philly sports tweets um, <laughs> alongside my uh, Wawa tweets and some gun tweets sometimes. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. This has been very informative and I refresh my memory on things and I will be sure to send people your way. Thank you again for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Gabby. All right. Yeah, thanks for having us, Gabby. Yeah, thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us some feedback. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform and leave us some reviews. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And I think there's a 50-50% chance I will have a special Wednesday episode for you all tomorrow. I'm going to probably be breaking some exclusive news. I don't want to tease out exactly who I'm speaking with until it is confirmed. But if you see a special episode tomorrow before warned, it'll be really good. And this was super cool to receive. And hopefully I'll be able to deliver it for you guys. But if I don't deliver, I apologize for getting your hopes up. But if tomorrow's episode does not happen, you can expect more great content and guests from us early next week thanks for listening to district of conservation make sure to leave us some reviews connect with me on social media and also check me out i think today i'm going to be on lone star outdoors podcast and tomorrow i will be on the foul front podcast hosted by ben page those were conducted recently i had a ball speaking to both of them about kind of politics the future of conservation my background, etc. So check those two interviews out. I will put them in the show notes and you can find them on social media once those are out. Thanks again for listening to all you new and returning listeners. I'm super grateful you're here. Spread the word to your friends and let's continue to have some growth here at District of Conservation.